Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of A Chat About History with me, Tom. Today we're going to be looking at normal people and insight into the ordinary people behind the Holocaust. So this, this area, I managed to be answering a few questions that I've kind of formulated to that hopefully will find insight into the the history and the psychology behind the ordinary people who perpetrated the you know the atrocities of the Holocaust under the Nazi regime uh, in the Second World War, and these questions focus around like how normal were the people doing this, how enthusiastic were they when they were uh, committing the atrocities, and then following on from that the natural progression that you know why why did they do it, how indoctrinated were they into the system. And finally, you know, how can we know, and possibly a little bit of a, what's the role of justice here, and what role does the historian have in in achieving justice? I'm just crediting the book Ordinary Men by Browning, which follows Reserve Police Battalion 101, and is a lot of the basis for what I know on this topic. So our first question is, how normal were these were these men predominantly, well, all men who were committing these atrocities. So I think the the earliest place to start is, you know, the, just before the war and how did these men end up in Reserve Police Battalion 101 or the, the Order Police? And, and it's actually an alternative to joining the army. So n naturally a lot of the men joining joining this police battalion were possibly avoiding conscription into the army or looking for a safer alternative. It wasn't that they wanted to be perpetrators of the Holocaust specifically, and it was more that they fell into that role through a lack of manpower rather than these people were the the nastiest select of the German society who wanted to commit these murders. And in fact, Reserve Police Battalion 101 in particular had a lot of older men in it, older men in it, sorry who uh, had experienced a non-Nazi society, so they had moral codes that pre-existed the Nazi regime in that they were now under. Um, and equally, in that sense, they weren't. They were less suited to the army due to the fact they were slightly older, so they hadn't been forcefully prescripted, uh, conscripted. Sorry. So, in in some cases, these men were looking to be involved in the war effort without being in the army. Uh, but there's also distinctions between the men in the unit and one of these key distinctions seems to be their their occupations and careers prior to joining the the police unit. So it seems from the evidence a lot more likely that people who were reliant upon the police as a career when the war finished were more likely to conform as they didn't have something to fall back on, and this would have been the career they'd almost been forced into due to the um, outbreak of war in Nazi Germany. Alternatively, those with a skilled occupation at home, often had families back home as well, had a job and a life to return to. Not saying those who were expected to be career policemen didn't have lives to return to, but they were significantly more reliant on having a "Quote unquote successful police career to support to support them in the long run, whereas those who could go back and pick up their their jobs previously to the war, in that sense, 
didn't feel as much of a pressure to conform in the way those who were reliant on the police did. And then, above those who were reliant on the police and those who had a skilled occupation to go back to, you have the people who generally were the greatest perpetrators of violence, or at least the most enthusiastic, and those were the, the ones who have been specifically indoctrinated into the SS or chosen to join the SS and therefore been indoctrinated within the process, who were more heavily invested in the ideology of the Nazi regime um, and then therefore often perpetrated greater violence or at least were more keen to perpetrate the violence than the more normal, in inverted commas, men who had just been, um, who had joined the unit either to avoid conscription or because they wanted to uh, join the forces but uh, hadn't managed to join the actual army. And just to clear up the role of the police battalion, they did end up actually fighting in combat towards the end, so they weren't completely uh, non-combat non troops, however, they were ultimately under the jurisdiction of the police rather than the army, so they it wasn't a particularly military uh, battalion or job However, they ended up being heavily involved in the moving of Jews to concentration camps and specifically massacres of Jews as well, such as the Josephel massacre, that we'll move on to in a second. So that's just giving a bit of background there that I should have given at the start on what the actual role of the police battalion was and how that was slightly different to what we might expect when we think of a police battalion. So I think the, the question now, we've worked out that a lot of them are mostly quite normal men, um, rather than the the select few who are more more indoctrinated and more invested in the ideolo ideology that were the uh, SS members of the police battalion, who often had authority over others as they were more involved in the Nazi Nazi regime. So the next question I think is how enthusiastic were these were these normal people and also the, the SS leaders in perpetrating the violence and atrocities? So Browning kind of categorises them into three three categories. Those who were very enthusiastic killers, those who were kind of conformers or reluctant killers, and then those who actively avoided killing killing Jews. And it's interesting, there's no, no category or no fourth category for people who openly opposed it or um, chose to stop others or try and oppose the institution or the values of killing the Jews. It was merely people who avoided having a personal involvement in it. So I think the biggest insight we have into how enthusiastic the members of Reserve Police Battalion 101 were is through the Josephal Massacre in March 1942. There's a lot of interesting elements within this massacre that it provide insight into how enthusiastic the men were. And first of all is I think we have to look at the leadership of the police battalion, which was commanded over by Wilhelm Trapp who himself was actually not enthusiastic at all. And um, he offered a lot of the men to not take part, and he himself wept and did not watch the massacre and actually afterwards found a, a young girl and decided she wouldn't be killed, showing a degree of sympathy for this girl was a, was a, was a Jew. Um, however, whilst that was trap um, as, as the overall leader, a lot of the lower officers, often members of the SS, berate those who did not take part and in later massacres actually actively forced the avoiders to kill the Jews to try and uh, 
indoctrinate them or involve them in this process that the whole police battalion was being involved in. However, 12 men uh, did take the offer that Trapp gave to, to not take part in the massacre, and these were often the ones that were berated by the lower officers. Uh, and whilst 12 took this offer, we're, we've got to realise that there are 500 men in the whole battalion. So in that sense, only a very small percentage actively chose originally to not uh, involve themselves in the massacre. However, over the course of the day, 10 to 20% of the troops stopped throughout, and a lot of others who were, or progressively these people who stopped, and some others would shoot past Jews to avoid actually killing them themselves, which are all kind of slight acts of, um, obviously, non-enthusiasm or trying to personally rid themselves of any responsibility by not taking part in the acts themselves. But obviously, the, the return, the other side of this is that 80% of the people did continue through the whole day, showing a lot, uh, a, a great degree of in, uh, involvement and conformity to the, and subject to the authority of the group. Uh, but there was a great degree of overall unhappiness from the battalion that they'd been given this job and expected to do this afterwards. Uh, however, this generally seems to be due to a lot of the gore, uh, you know, obviously it's a very gory experience having to shoot such a great number of Jews uh, up close, and the, the opposition was to that rather than explicitly to the ideological commitment of having to kill uh, other human beings, specifically Jews. Uh, so we can see this, this is kind of seen as a problem by the the Nazi authorities who try and rectify the situation. Uh, their situation being that their troops aren't happy doing it themselves. So instead they, they move towards obviously the methods of extermination camps and then the less well known method of using Tronikis and Hiwis, who were uh, prisoners of war, often from Scandinavia uh, or Eastern Europe, who would uh, who were released from being prisoners of war to take part in these units, which would basically do the killing themselves, so to stop the German troops having to do it. And this removed a strain from the German troops, uh, according to the the Nazi authorities, who who shifted the 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 burden onto the Tronikis and the Hiwis and onto the extermination camps. Uh, an example of this is the Lamazi, where which was a Tronikis and Hiwi uh, massacre, and obviously the extermination camps are well known in the atrocities that were perpetrated there. Uh, so going back to this, the often a question in this this area of how enthusiastic were they? We can see they, they obviously members of the leadership weren't. Uh, some of the troops actively avoided it. However, often. You know, we can see in Joseph how this wasn't actually a, a majority at all, it was only 20%. But a lot of them were unhappy with the job, but this wasn't due to ideological concerns, but more practical ones. But I think another fundamental element of this is alcoholism. So the unit got very drunk after the Joseph massacre, and at Lamazi, which was perpetrated by the Tronikis and the Hiwis, rather than directly by the police battalion, the Tronikis and Hiwis got so drunk they couldn't actually continue. So the German soldiers had to take over for them for a little bit of time. Um, and we have other examples of Germans given extra alcohol rations after committing a massacre at Sirokomla, and instances where troops would actually wait for vodka to be brought to them before starting a massacre. So this reliance on alcoholism, I think, is, is indicative, again, of a reluctance through the unit to perpetrate these, these massacres. And whilst they weren't enthusiastic, they and whilst the majority, sorry, weren't enthusiastic, there are instances of uh, individuals who were, 
they the majority still conformed to this um, expectation of them to perpetrate these massacres. So therefore, we can see it was quite it was quite varied how enthusiastic they were, and this did progress over time. So Joe Scott was the first massacre, and as the shift happened to extermination camps in Trinix and Hewes, the troops were more compliant with demands to 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 commit massacres, possibly due to their comparison with such an atrocity they were asked to commit at Josephal. Everything else looked slightly more favourable as Josephal was such an atrocious thing uh, to to commit. Also, authority figures uh, that opposed it, such as Trapp or also Buchmann. Uh, Trapp's offers, Trapp's personal trying to avoidance of situation meant that he wasn't always there, so he couldn't offer them to not take part in which would obviously increase conformity as they didn't have the option to opt out. And also certain authority figures who were opposed to it asked to be moved off, such as Buchmann, who uh, who went back home to Germany after consistently requesting this. Uh, and as he wasn't a regular uh, member of uh, Reserve Police Battalion 101, he had a bit of authority, he managed to get home. And obviously this route, as mem members of authority who weren't happy complying with orders left, it left less members of authority there. Um, to which the avoiders could empathise or appeal to. So, the next logical conclusion from, well, not logical conclusion, the next logical question to ask from the knowledge that they weren't all really enthusiastic was why did they kill? Were they all inherently anti Semitic? That's probably, probably not true due to the fact we've seen they weren't really enthusiastic. Were they just conforming to gain credence with their, with their fellow? fellow peers, or were they just, were they scared of authority? So, using a little bit of psychology here, there's the attribution theory, which attributes personal decisions to either situational disposition, and I think I would clearly put this under the situation category, that actually these people didn't have a particular disposition to be murderers, but the, due to the situ situation they were put into, they were forced, or, you know, you could argue chose, but they became perpetrators of, you know, some of the worst genocide uh, in history. And so Goldhagen takes a slightly different view, and he thinks that this was to some extent a disposition and that a lot of the Germans were inherently anti-Semitic. I find this quite unconvincing. So I think I think when you look at actually this idea of the German populations being long-term anti-Semites and this being widespread throughout the German population, you've got to look back at what happened just prior to Nazi the, the Nazi takeover of power, and actually Nazis only have got 37% of the vote, which is not a uh, massive mandate for widespread German anti-Semitism. And equally, a lot of the votes for Nazism were more out of a fear of socialism and communism, which were tangible threats due to, obviously, the presence of Russia as a communist society and the rise in popular of popularity of socialism and communism throughout Europe. And this seems to be a greater fear in the sources than fear of Jews was specifically. And also, the anti-Semitism we see uh, perpetrated throughout the World War was not only unique to Germany and countries such as Romania uh, perpetrated great violence against Jews where actually 15,000 Jews were killed in June in 1941 in one month alone and um, and equally in Germany itself millions of Soviet prisoners of wars prisoners of war sorry and Poles were also killed prior to the enactment of the final solution so this degree of violence and perpetration of genocide was not always explicitly aimed at the Jews, but also um, Soviet prisoners of wars and other ethnic minorities, such as the Poles, or people that the Germans considered racially 
in inferior. And finally, also Luxembourgers were present within Reserve Police Battalion 101, 14 people of Luxembourg nationality, and they seem to act the same as the Germans. Um, it, so in that sense, again, you're looking at uh, people who wouldn't have been subject to the same degree of um, German... They, they weren't from Germany. So the idea that this was purely due to an anti-Semitic culture within Germany, I think, is is unconvincing in that sense. And also, there seem to be acts of superficial... I don't think you can quite call it kindness, but superficial acts to individual Jews from Nazi soldiers that would be uncharacteristic of somebody who had an inherent hatred of, of Jewish people as a race. Uh, these these amounts of things, such as so Jews who would work in the kitchens, were um, often allowed to, well, not often, sorry, but were occasionally allowed to escape. Uh, or also, soldiers would try and kill Jews in a more merciful manner if they if they knew them. So there was a, a degree of humanity there, in that they reckoned, not that it was a humane kind of action, but they recognised they were humans rather than just Jews, and they distinguished between them. Which, again, it doesn't, this is in no way trying to excuse what they've done, of course, but it, it, it shows a degree that these people weren't inherently anti-Semitic and this wasn't necessarily the pure motivation for the perpetration of genocide. So I think naturally then you think what well, how indoctrinated were they? That's the it, it's all I'm saying there. They weren't particularly seeing as they 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 an inherent anti-Semiticness, an inherent anti-Semitic feeling wasn't at the heart of their actions. Although they were subject to extreme propaganda both within the police and just within society more generally, um, a lot of them as I said before had experienced life pre the Nazi regime and had moral moral codes which were at a contrast with the Nazi ideology. So then why, if they weren't indoctrinated, these people weren't inherently anti-Semitic, why did they perpetrate such atrocious genocide? So I think there's a, the main points here are conformity and authority. So Browning puts a special um, emphasis on conformity. Uh, and this can be shown by things such as people who actually avoided this, so people who didn't conform claim this was due to their weakness rather than saying this was due to their, their moral codes, which, which shows that therefore within the group uh, the moral codes were so warped to enforce compliance that to not comply was just seen as weak rather than as having a different view. Um, and that was even enforced by those who did not comply. And equally, as we said before, those who were reliant on the career in the police were more likely to conform. And the sense of this group as an individual uh, moral group who all had the same same job to do. So there was almost a, a comradeship between them in perpetrating acts of genocide, that they were all in this together. Uh, and I think there is, there's obviously uh, evidence to, to, in, to, to suggest conformity was a, of, you know, of, of importance to a great degree, but also I think Browning slightly overlooks the idea of authority. And whilst there was no explicit punishment for these, for these troops, there's not much evidence in the sources for the troops being punished for not, uh, not conforming and not taking, uh, and not co committing themselves to the actions. I don't think this should be overlooked. So these men would obviously have a fear, not only for their own lives, but a lot of them would have families back at home. And they, they, I think it would be fair to say, even if you haven't seen it, you are, they're in a position of responsibility in that they're, if their actions they believe could lead to uh, retribution against them, but not only them, also their families and children who are back home. Uh, and also there's kind of an innate desire 
to be obedient, possibly, where it's the easiest choice to make. And this kind of de-individuation, as you kind of lose your awareness when you're in a big group, lends itself easily to just submitting to authority. And there's, there's psychological experiments that support this, such as Milgram's experiment, where uh, people were told to give electrical shocks to a to a um, an actor who then acted out the receiving these electrical shocks uh, that ranged from a tiny shock up to what was just marked on the system as three X's, possibly indicative of, of death or, you know, this was above severe life-threatening shock level. And two-thirds of the people in the experiment originally gave the maximum dose, and this was especially increased when an authority figure was telling to do so. So even uh, these people, they, they knew they were in an experiment, they knew they wouldn't be subject to explicit punishment, but they still uh, were obedient to authority, showing this kind of idea that actually, even if there isn't a specific alternative, they'd be fearful of being punished, they are still obedient to authority. And also when you submit to authority, it removes a degree of personal responsibility as you were just following orders rather than you making a personal choice. And if you just abdicate personal responsibility, you can almost absolve yourself of all the guilt because all you're doing is submitting to authority rather than making personal choices. So in that sense, I think authority plays a great role in why these soldiers perpetrated the massacre that they did um, to a greater degree than either conformity. And I think the idea that they were all inherently anti-Semitic is, is somewhat in contradiction to the fact that they were ordinary people and also proven to not be factually supported. And then, as a, as a historian, I think you've been actually got to ask, how can, how can we know all of this? Where does our information come from and how reliable is it? So a lot of the information comes from judicial records, uh, which naturally has has problems within, you know, in 18, as, as all evidence does. So these judicial records are often 25 years old, and obviously, so obviously a lot of time has passed. People have tried to forget the massacres they've been involved in. People have often been drunk when perpetrating these massacres. Therefore, their you know memory naturally is going to be worse due to that. And also, as it is a judicial record, people didn't want to self-incriminate or incriminate others. So, for example, no one admitted to killing infants at Josephal, but it is known that obviously a lot of infants died at the Josephal massacre. And equally, the 14 Luxembourg uh, members of Reserve Police Battalion 101 engaged in a pact of silence where they all refused to incriminate anyone else within that group of 14, uh, or, or, them, or themselves, showing this kind of, the, the, the innate problems in the, in the evidence. And also the fact that these people are now, it, it, as 25 years on, not only they've forgotten, but they'd, they, they, they probably felt guilty and they'd moved past the idea of the, the Nazi moral codes, even if they had been indoctrinated to some degree, and they'd embraced, uh, they'd embraced a more, what we consider more normal, normal morality and were obviously, in that sense, did not agree or wish to confront or, or admit the atrocities they committed. Uh, there are also pictures which Browning adds to his to his book, um, and which, whilst they're helpful, they and they can show a place and event, and this can help jog memories, etc., and provide provide evidence that's relatively irrefutable um, if it can be pinned to a certain place and time. Uh, but obviously, a lot of these pictures came from the uh, the Nazis, and they had an official agenda with their photography to portray actions in a certain way. And equally, a lot of the photos were possibly discreetly taken to a, a rush and of worse quality as as people tried to sneak sneak the photos in. 
so so these are obviously both both uh, the judicial records and then even the pictures uh, are, show great problems with the evidence that this historian has has inherited. And then finally, I just wanted to think about when I when I see all of this, I think and actually, what role has the historian got in enacting justice? And I'm I'm not going to go into massive depth on this. Um, uh, because you're not going to like explore the concept of justice in itself, but we'll take it just that the idea of doing doing what we would now perceive in society, society as right, and it's actually who who's at fault here, because Adolf Eichmann gave the 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 argument of the banality of evil, and actually he was just at his desk giving orders, scheduling trains, rather than perpetrating the violence himself. But then it's hard to then say these troops on the ground following orders were all. Uh, they were the ones that should be purely guilty of this rather than Eichmann. And Eichmann was found guilty in his trial and actually executed. Uh, and a lot of these troops, uh, well, sorry, not a lot of these troops, a tiny minority of these troops were found to be guilty. And these often actually ended up being some of the people like Trapp who weren't, uh, and, and Buchmann who weren't in favour explicitly themselves of enacting the violence, but they commanded it and therefore uh, Trapp was actually killed, I believe, afterwards and then Buchmann and Kramer, who was another another uh, authority figure within the unit who wasn't individually indoctrinated or massively invested in it, but did perpetrate this violence. Uh, they were both put in prison for uh, eight and three years, respectively, I think. Uh, so in that sense, the idea of justice and does the historian does the historian's job now now to go back and enact justice on these people if they're still alive? If most of them are dead, do we need to like condemn their condemn their historical legacy? I, I don't think that's the historian's job to go back and condemn these people as, as bad, but I think understanding how they perpetrated such acts of violence, which is hopefully what I've tried to do throughout this podcast, is is essential. And also comparative comparative justice, just slightly when you compare these these troops now, who I think a lot of people would easily find abhorrent or abominable in their actions, actually, and a lot of them were were obviously no not a lot of them again, sorry, a tiny minority were punished as we saw with uh, the capital punishment in, in, in specific cases. Uh, and you compare that to the My Lai massacre perpetrated against the Vietnamese by the Americans in the 60s um, under very different circumstances uh, in the sense that America is not the Nazi regime, obviously, uh, and America has different values to the Nazi regime. But at the end of the day, the My Lai massacre did involve the mass killing of civilians within Vietnam by an individual unit. And no one was punished for that in the end as um, uh, as as. It, People were subsequently let off their sentences, despite that being a conspiracy in terms of it happening and then covering it up. So is it the historian's job then to go back and condemn people? I think if people are alive, then I think, yes, I think the historian should have an essential role in the justice system because the justice system will act on people who are alive. But it's natural that historians are some of the best people to understand the circumstances they would have been in at the time. And that can be seen in the trial of Eichmann. I think that was fair to go and put him on trial for the atrocities that he indirectly, albeit indirectly, committed. Uh, and then I think, in terms of going back further into the past, uh, it's it's important to consider morality but not impose it. So in that sense, I don't think the historian should be a judge going through the past, condemning certain figures and, um, you know, idealising others. However, to understand the morality of the figures within the past, I think, is is essential to understanding their actions. So, in conclusion, I think we need to realise that we're looking at relatively normal, normal men who were unenthusiastic, 
uh, especially originally, although this did increase over time, in perpetrating the atrocities that they did. However, they did this primarily due to a sense of conformity and moreover authority, rather than the idea that they were uh, inherently anti-Semitic or massively indoctrinated into Nazi ideology. And then, naturally, the sources are of a somewhat dubious reliability, although when, when combined together it can help us to understand the, the, get the psychology of the perpetrators of this genocide. And then finally, the idea of justice that we looked at, and actually the historian's job, if they're alive, is to have a role in justice. However, not to impose a morality onto, uh, onto history and not to impose morality onto historical figures to judge them or condemn them, but instead to use morality to understand why people acted in the way that they did. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And please leave any feedback and check out any of my other episodes if you've enjoyed this one. Thank you very much.